Welcome to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. Whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus or are exploring what faith in Him might look like, we are glad you're here. It is our prayer that by listening to this message, you may better understand who God is, what He has done for you, and what that means for your life. May all of this lead to the worship of God and be for His glory. This morning's reading will be taken from the English Standard Version. 1 King chapter 11, verses 1 to 13, then 41 to 43. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other, other gods. And his heart was not only wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was, <clears throat> sorry, as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth and the goddess of the Sidians and after Melchum and the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And Solomon built a high place for the Chemas on the mountain of East Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon and because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since there has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom are not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon. In the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem, all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. May Lord add his blessing to this, the reading of his holy word. And that's how the kingdom gets divided. You've heard of the northern and the southern kingdoms, and uh, that's how that division began. A few weeks ago, we considered and we talked about this incredible period of time in Israel's history where there was peace and prosperity. It was an incredible time. They had rest on every side. We were told that there was no adversaries around. 
And what we had said was that this wouldn't last. It would be for a brief period. It was going to be brief, this picturesque kingdom that we read about, that we described. And so two weeks ago, we saw the beginning signs that we contemplated the Queen of Sheba's visit to Solomon. We saw those beginning signs that maybe things were starting to go south. We noticed that some things weren't looking quite right, as it were. And so today we're going to see the culmination of all of that. And it is the end of the kingdom as we knew it briefly. And what we will see is that there were actually adversaries that were around all along. We thought there were no adversaries, that they had peace on every side, but we see that there actually were some. But the thing is, these adversaries, they weren't physical threats that surrounded them like we may be accustomed to seeing, but rather they resided in Solomon's own heart. And so this is the story of King Solomon's failure. And though we get glimpses of it earlier, it wasn't really until the end of his life that all of this came to fruition. And that's a sober warning for all of us. Because what this means is that you could look okay on the outside, you could be doing okay for a long period of time, your whole life as it, as it seems to appear before us, but on the inside, there's an insidious evil that is growing that could destroy you. And I don't want to make everyone here totally depressed this morning, but I think we have to hear this warning. The sobering warning is that your greatest failure could yet come. It could yet be before you. You might yet have a failure that is actually so monumental that it could destroy everything that you have accomplished and the things that you are currently working to accomplish. That could lie yet in your future. Everything you've worked so hard for in your life, everything you will work hard for in your life, it can all come crashing down. There is nothing that is protected from this. There's no one on earth that isn't susceptible to this. You see, Solomon didn't fail in a way that it could just be overlooked because he had accomplished so much. It didn't really matter, no. He failed in a way that all of his incredible accomplishments, the greatest accomplishments that have ever been achieved on earth, as it were, in a way really came to almost nothing. So fast. And that can happen to any of us. See, it doesn't take long to look around and see people who have created empires. And it seemed like they were untouchable, and I think they thought that they were untouchable, but all to be taken away and to come to nothing. The buildings that they built torn down, their names removed from history. I'm not going to get into them all, but we know of names like Nygaard, Ravi, Epstein, Weinstein, Cosby, you know, the list goes on. No one is untouchable. No one is untouchable. And so how can this be avoided? And how many times does this happen later in life, as we see here in the life of Solomon? Well, we want to consider that this morning, of how we avoid these things. And as we look here at chapter 11, and what we will look at is, number one, the requirement that God has for us. Number two, the sovereignty of God. And number three, the hope of God. And that's how we're going to break down this chapter this morning. So let's begin in these first verses that we heard read to us this morning in 1 to 13, the requirement of God. 
And see, the requirement of God that he makes so clear throughout all of his word is wholehearted devotion. God required wholehearted devotion from his people. There can be no partiality when it comes to our relationship with God. But before we get to the heart of Solomon's fall, though, I think we should be clear about the character of his offense. Now, last week we looked at Deuteronomy chapter, or two weeks ago, I should say, Deuteronomy 17, and we looked at some of the things that a king shouldn't do, that God had warned in advance. You know, a king should not do these things. If I give you a king, the king that you've asked for, and I will, but make sure that he doesn't do these things. And among them were acquiring horses from Egypt and collecting chariots like the surrounding nation had. The king was not to do those things. And that was also uh, another one that we said was coming up that hadn't yet happened yet was the other thing was to not marry foreign women. And that is also made explicitly clear in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 7 and 17. And that wasn't due to racist reasons, of course. It was because God knew that they would turn the hearts away from God, even of the kings. And so we hear of the many wives from the many nations. And at the end of his life, what he did is he built temples. And so now all of these women from foreign nations that he had brought into his life and into their culture, now they could all have cozy places to worship their gods from the comfort of Jerusalem. They didn't have to travel back to where they were from, right on the Mount of Olives. They didn't have to go back home. Solomon would take care of that. And we are told that his own heart went after those gods. Now this shows us that it wasn't Solomon's wisdom or his wealth or his affluence that was the problem. You know, many commentators will even point to this. We read about those things in previous chapters as good things that God had blessed him with. Chapters 1 to 10, they were all pretty positive about these things. They weren't the problem. Other gods were the problem. And that is first commandment rule breaking that Solomon had fallen prey to. And so throughout this story, we notice kind of four features of the sin that had began to grow within Solomon. And I think ways in which we need to be aware of how sin grows within us. The first is the subtlety of sin that we see in verses 2 to 4. And how is this sin subtle? I think the answer is that because it's internal. It was an internal sin. It was a matter of the heart. I mean, look at how many times the word heart is used. When we read through those verses from verses 2 to 4, the word heart was used five times in those few verses. And now the Bible doesn't use the word heart like our contemporary culture does to talk about just emotions or feelings. And that is certainly part of it. But the Bible recognizes a wider heart of the matter. And we may define it as the willing, loving, thinking center of a person. Edmund Jacob, the Old Testament scholar, uh, came up with this definition, and I think it's a good one. The willing, loving, thinking center of a person is the way in which the Bible describes the heart. Now, the Bible doesn't really separate, actually, the head from the heart. It's more like the head and the heart are connected. It's like the head is, is a part of the heart. And so this passage shows us that we are dealing with something that is internal and it is invisible. You couldn't see it happening per se. It was something that was growing and welling within. And this is the Old Testament. You know, we often don't think of the Old Testament this way. We think the Old Testament was all about external obedience. But that doesn't seem to be 
what we notice here. Old Testament faith was actually internal despite what we may think. And as Jesus saw this as the root of it all, and so did the Old Testament. You might remember John chapter 7 where Jesus speaks of this and he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It's all from within. It's from within the heart of man. The Old Testament gives us actual illustrations of this. We see it happening before our eyes as we read these stories. And it means that sin starts in the hidden depths of our lives. Before you see a new pagan temple being built to sacrifice babies on the Mount of Olives, it was already in Solomon's heart. It was already growing there. It was subtle. But not only is this sin subtle, it's also gradual. We see this in verse 4 that has this scary line that I've referred to a couple of times this morning already that says, when Solomon was old, his wives had turned away his heart after other gods. That means that it wasn't just a sudden impulse that appeared out of nowhere. Sometimes sin works that way, but it doesn't usually. It took years. It took years to develop within Solomon. Dale Davis, commentator, calls that the creeping pace to accumulated compromises. There's a creeping pace to accumulating compromises. It's the fruit of a consciousness that is desensitized by repeated permissiveness. And so over time, it began to grow and to grow and to grow. It was gradual. And it maybe wasn't even noticed to start with. I used to have this truck that I was like, really proud of. Like this was back in the early days before Tanya and I were even dating actually, so it was a really long time ago. But it was a little red Toyota 4x4. And this was my pride and joy. It even had like roll bars, it had KC lights, you know, so you could drive through the bush with it. And I don't know what that was for. I guess if you're, you're not allowed to hunt at night, but it had lights on it that you could like shine uh, anywhere. And uh, it was the coolest thing. And we used to drive this thing off-road all the time. And, but what I didn't realize was that over time, what had been happening was there was a very slow leak that had developed within the engine. You know, the gasket was starting to fail. But I never parked in the same place really, uh, you know, consistently. So I never saw it really accumulating. But little by little, what I hadn't noticed is that it was dripping out little by little. And one day I was driving from Regina to Saskatoon. It was the middle of January. It was 30 below. It was at night. It was dark. And all of a sudden, the engine just stopped running. It just, the, the gasket blew and all the, what was left of the oil had dripped out and the engine died right there in the middle of the highway in the middle of winter. And it was terrible. It was terrible. I mean, it's cold. You know what it's like in the prairies. But this took years. This wasn't just something that just happened out of nowhere. It was gradual. It took years for this to happen. A slow, imperceptible leaking that occurred that results in this catastrophic event. And that's how sin grows. That's how sin grows within all of this. That's what happened in the life of Solomon here. I mean, it says that in verse 4 that this happened when Solomon was old. I mean, we often have a fixation on young people or teens or young adults, and we all often say, oh, we're worried for them. we got to make sure that they're making good decisions. It's true. But the greatest trials you will face in life will most likely happen when you are over 60. 
You know, I speak from experience and in people's lives that we've all recognized and seen. The greatest trial most likely that you will ever, ever experience will happen in your old age. And we need to be vigilant. And we need to watch our hearts when we are young and when we are old because your greatest trials are likely yet to come. The wisest man who ever lived fell into his greatest sin when he was an old man. And that's something I think for us to think about, not to take lightly. And that is why Jesus calls us to pray this every time we pray. To pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He says, when you pray, pray this way. Why is that? Temptation doesn't leave us. It's not that as we get older, hopefully we get wiser as we get older, but that temptation is still there and we are still susceptible. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There is a gradual nature of sin. It's subtle, it's gradual, and it creates great tragedy is the third. You see, there's hints in chapter 11 that clue us into the whole of Solomon's story. I mean, if you look at the love terminology once again, in the beginning it says that Solomon loved many foreign women. To them, Solomon clung in love. Now, this brings to mind the narrator's claim near the start of the book in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. For you remember when we were way back there, we were told at that time, in that verse, Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of David his father. Solomon loved the Lord. And so while it may be true that many of Solomon's wives were gathered in order to win him political success, it's not the intention of this passage to make that point as many commentators believe. See, the text tells us more. We are told that Solomon clung to them in love. Solomon clung to them. And this is why I've titled this message, The Cling On Heart. See, this is a word that the Bible uses to refer to the marriage relationship in Genesis when it says, for this reason, a man shall hold fast, is maybe the terminology we're used to referring to, hold fast, but the word is cling. It's the same word. For this reason, a man shall hold fast or cling to his wife. And it also applies to faithfulness to the Lord in other passages, this idea of clinging. We are to cling to the Lord. We are to cling to our wife. So Solomon did not completely renounce the Lord, but his wives had turned his heart away in verse 4. And his heart was not wholly true. It was divided. And this causes all of us to sit back and take notice. Because we think of ourselves and our own relationship with God, the lives that we are living, are we guilty of having a divided heart? Do we have divided devotion to God? You know, Solomon did great things. He built the first temple to God. He had tremendous success throughout most of his life, but yet he had fooled himself into thinking that compromise didn't matter to God. It would be okay if some of these things snuck through. And ongoing compromises leads to more compromises, and it led to his fall. What does your heart cling to? Where do you find relief and comfort? That's an important thing to consider. Because where we find our relief and our comfort, where we naturally go to, is what we typically will find that our heart is actually clinging to. What are you compromising in? Your whole life will eventually flow in the direction of those indicators. There is a tragedy to sin. 
And that tragedy leads to the consequences. We see these in 9 to 13, and it's pretty plain to see here that the consequences of his sin are the anger of the Lord in verse 9. The Lord was angry at what he had done. Now, we might be shocked to think that God would be angry at our compromise, that our heart finding comfort somewhere other than him would cause him to become actually angry. And this was actually unique to the God of Israel. You see, there were no other gods in the ancient Near East that demanded exclusive devotion of their worshipers. We can become very uncomfortable with the reality that the God of the Bible is not a pluralist. You know, we don't fool around with other gods and with other worldviews, as it were. He is not a God to be shared. And that was a unique attribute of the God of Israel. No other God was like this. You would add gods in, and we can think of this even... When Paul in Acts 17 at Areopagus, and he's on Mars Hill, and there's all these different gods, and they even have one god that says, to the unknown god, because in case we're missing out on one, we're going to add all the gods in that we can to make sure that we have a full complement. But God was not like that. God was different. God required a wholehearted devotion, and he is unique in that. This was the sin of idolatry, and it came about because Solomon didn't listen to the counsel of God when he had told them in Exodus to not take marriage partners from the nations that they will encounter. That was at the heart of that command. Why? Because they would slowly turn their hearts away from their singular devotion to God if they did this, and that, God, that causes God to express his anger. So God does get angry. That's verse 9. And this is why... We teach that it is so important that if you consider yourself to be a Christian and you want to date someone, that you must limit your affection to other Christians. Do not open up yourself to dating non-believers if you consider yourself to be a believer. And that's not something that comes from me, my particular teaching. It doesn't come from church tradition that, oh, churches have just traditionally taught that. It comes directly from God. In Exodus 34, he talks about this. And here he talks about this many other places throughout the Old Testament. It's also picked up by Paul in the New Testament. Do not join yourself together with unbelievers. When that joining is that clinging, it is that marriage relationship that's being talked about. What can light have to do with darkness, he says. Why? Because God is a jealous God. He demands our whole devotion. And if he didn't love us as much as he does, then he wouldn't care about this. But it shows the deep amount of care that he has for each of us. How powerful and how holy the love is that he has for us. He doesn't want anything to stand in the way of that and to distract and to divide our hearts. He doesn't want anything to steal our heart away. It was a sin that Solomon married women who didn't love God. And that sin had consequences, deep consequences. It caused the division of the kingdom and centuries of heartache for God's people as a result. And this is why Jesus comes along in John chapter 21. And he sits down with Peter after they had finished eating breakfast together. And he looks at him across the fire on that shore of Galilee. And he probes Peter over and over again if he truly loves him. It must have been quite uncomfortable for Peter do you love me, Peter? He keeps asking him. And Peter's like, Lord, you know that I love you. But Jesus just keeps on, he keeps on asking. It's got to get down deep. Do you love me? Do you really love me? He keeps asking. His heart 
could not be divided, and nor can ours. We cannot cling to anything other than Jesus or it will spell disaster for us. There are consequences. We see the features of sin very clearly laid out in chapter 11. That's the requirement of God is the wholehearted devotion. But in this passage, that I spent most of my time on, on the first point, but I also want us to notice this, the sovereignty of God here. Because there's a few things in this passage that show God's sovereignty that lead to the hope of the next point. And the first one is that God's sovereignty is seen in history in 1426. Those are the verses that we didn't read. Uh, and there are key, three key verses that tell us what God was doing on the historical scene. The first one, it says in verse 14, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. The second, in verse 23, it says, God has also raised up an adversary to him, Rezin the son of Eliada. And then third, in verse 26, we are told, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, also lifted up his hand against the king. Now the wording in that third one in verse 26, it doesn't say the Lord raised Jeroboam, but the rest of the chapter makes it clear that he did. Now, obviously, the news doesn't report world events in this way. If you've been watching the news, it doesn't tell us how God caused things to happen, the things that we are witnessing. Not just because they are secular, but because also it's very difficult to tell what God is doing and why He's doing it on a world scene. And that's why the Bible is so different, though. The authors have revelation. They have light from the outside that shines on these situations. So without even batting an eye, one of the writers will say with the utmost confidence, God raised up an adversary. It happened. And we may be so used to reading that kind of line that it almost fails to surprise us that God has done this thing. Hadad, Rezin, and Jeroboam are not just like these accidental thorns in Solomon's side. Rather, their place and time and impact, it was carefully ordained by the Lord's sovereign word. And when he acts in this way, he is simply carrying out what he previously stated that he would do. He told Israel this would be a consequence back in 2 Samuel 7, 14. And God is consistent. Here comes the consequence. God's sovereignty on display. So consistent. What God said he would do, he has done. We're not, we're not used to seeing that in our leaders. Like That's a paradigm shift for us. You know, we have environment ministers who fly around on private jets, and we have finance ministers who stay in $2,000 a night hotels and run up excessive alcohol tabs for their entire entourage. So how is that consistent with the portfolios that they are handling? We're not used to seeing consistency in the leader, but God is 100% consistent in all that He does, and His sovereign acts always come to fruition. We can see the way in which He warned, and He follows through on the warning, great consistency, including punishing for what he said he would punish. But not only in history, but also in prophecy. So in the bulk of chapter 11, we hear about the way in which these consequences for Solomon's sin were going to come about through very specific people. Adversaries were going to rise up, and the kingdom was going to be divided. The northern kingdom was now going to be called Israel, and the southern kingdom was going to be called Judah, which is where Jerusalem is located within the southern kingdom. And each of these kingdoms would have their own kings. You'd have the king of the north and the king of the south. So as you're reading through the rest of Kings and Chronicles, you'll see that there's more than one king at play within God's people. He had, uh, 
what, or excuse me, one of each of these kingdoms have their own kings. One of the adversaries that it mentions would become the king of the northern kingdom. That's Jeroboam that we heard about. He's going to be the king in the north. We hear this part of this story beginning in verse 26. Now this guy, Jeroboam, had success written all over him. He was an energetic worker. He was a natural leader. And it looks like he was headed north out of Jerusalem for the weekend when Ahijah, the prophet from Shiloh, he made a point to bump into him on the road and have a conversation with him as Jeroboam is walking out of Jerusalem. He's kind of in this nowhere kind of a place on the, on the middle of the road. And now, as we know from Old Testament prophets, they usually had unusual means of acting out their prophecy in very surprising ways. They loved visual les lessons. And Ahijah was wearing a new coat when he bumps into Jeroboam. The two of them were alone in the open country, and suddenly Ahijah tears off his new coat, and he rips it into 12 pieces. And he tells Jeroboam to take 10 of the pieces, and Ahijah tells him what this means. God is going to rip the kingdom from Solomon, and the 12 tribes of Israel are going to be divided, and Jeroboam, the guy he's talking to, he, who will be in the northern kingdom of Israel, he will take 10 of these tribes. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they are going to stay with the lineage of Solomon. In the south, we have Judah and Benjamin. And we will watch the word of prophecy come to pass in the following chapters. It's going to happen just as God said. In God's sovereignty, it happened as He said it would. And we see clearly in chapter 11 that history is clearly in the Lord's control. He accomplishes what He sets out to accomplish. And that's good news for us because this does lead us to the hope that we see in these next series of verses. And this is where we want to find our culmination of what we see here today. We have seen the requirement of God, namely His command for wholehearted devotion. We've seen the sovereignty of God through history and through prophecy. And now we see the hope of God strewn throughout this chapter. This is what it says, and this is where I think the hope is found. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, You've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Then the Lord goes into more detail on this from verse 31 to 39. But we see within here, first of all, the first two things that I underlined there. I will not do it in your days, and I will not tear away all the kingdom. So we see God's mercy at play here. And then the Lord goes into more detail on this from verse 31 to 39, and He ends by saying one more thing, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Now this is important because Yahweh is going to have to give consequences in a way that doesn't negate his previous consequences. You see what I mean? There's consequences, but he's already given previous consequences of what they are, previous promises of what they would have. And so he has to hold both of these things in balance. So you have God's original promise of a king from the line of David and of a kingdom, and you also have the promise of consequences for not obeying his commands, and those have to be administered in a way where his covenant promises are still intact and one doesn't negate the other. And so we hear those three phrases of hope within the consequence. Not now, not all, and not forever. Not now, not all of it, 
not forever. So not now. One, the judgment is going to be delayed for some time. It will happen in the days of his son, Rehoboam. Second, the judgment will be restricted in its extent, Solomon. His son will get Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites. See, God has an elect person in David that we see in verse 34 and an elect place in Jerusalem in verse 32 and 36. A covenant king and covenant worship are non-negotiables. God couldn't tear those away and, and get rid of them. They cannot be completely obliterated because God had promised that they would be there. And so Jeroboam's role and his rule will have to take place within these confines. So God said he will afflict the seed of David because of this, but he won't do it forever. So there'll be affliction, but not abandonment. There's a flicker of hope behind this cloud of judgment even. Not now, not all of it, and best of all, not forever. You know, they were going to go under some brutal times, but that promise was always going to be hanging there. This isn't forever. And that's what sustains us today. You see, that's what sustains the persecuted church that we have been talking about and praying for over the course of this month, that it's not forever. The hope is that not forever points to a day when the son of David will reign over all things and all will be well. We are told that day came in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and there will yet come a day when that reign will be fully inaugurated. We hear of both of these days in the New Testament, at the very beginning of the New Testament and at the very end. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It makes that very clear. This is who we are talking about, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The rest of the chapter traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to David and from David all the way back to Abraham. God had provided a king to rule from the line of David for all eternity, just as he said he would. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, as we heard last week, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Jesus is so clearly portrayed throughout Scripture that he was the promised king, that God's people would not be in turmoil forever, that Jesus would come onto the scene, the Messiah, the promised Messiah would come, and he would rule. And look at how perspective changes because of that truth in Revelation chapter 5. As we heard this last week, in verse 1 to 5, we are told that John is weeping profusely because there's no one found worthy to open the scrolls. But then one of the elders says to John, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of Judah, Jesus, from the root of David is here, and he is worthy, and he can open the scrolls. Who would have done it? But Jesus is there. And then when that happens, then it's just praise and adoration. As soon as Jesus come on the scene, and we see now there is someone who is here. The promised Messiah has come. It's a song of joy. It's new songs being sung of the worthiness and the beauty and the grace of Jesus. Why? We are told because he was slain, because he shed his blood, and he has ransomed us for God. That's verse 9 of Revelation 5. A new song of praise is sung because he is worthy, because he was slain, because he shed his blood, and his blood was a ransom for us. Friends, that's the truth. Without Jesus, there is only weeping. But when you behold Jesus, when you see Him, and when you accept His sacrifice on your behalf, 
your weeping turns to joy. You become a part of the kingdom. You become priests and you will reign forever with him on the earth. That's verse 10. Before Jesus, weeping. After Jesus, an inability to contain your joy and your worship. Which camp do you fall into this morning? All of this leads us to the communion table, to the Lord's table before us this morning. So this morning we're going to come to the table of the Lord as we do on the last Sunday of every month. And we are going to celebrate the fact that Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 is true. That Jesus was slain for our sins, and by His blood we have become a ransomed people for God. That's what this table before us remembers, and it's how we worship. And so this morning we want to consider these things. We want to consider what is it that our heart is clinging to. We all have cling-on hearts. Is it the truth that I have just mentioned, or is it the gospel, or is it something else? Is it the truth, is it the gospel, or is it something else that you find your heart clinging to? Is your heart divided this morning? Is your heart taking you in a direction that is apart from God? You may not see it now, but your greatest defeat, your greatest trial, your greatest tragedy could yet be in your future, and so we need to be ready. We need to be wholly devoted to God and when we are, we will conquer. Not because you are good, but because Jesus is. Because Jesus is conquered, so too will you. So I want us to take a moment of silent reflection as we consider that this morning, as we consider Jesus' sacrifice this morning, as we consider what He has done on our behalf, and take a moment, confess any division that is in your heart, and covenant your whole heart to God. And I think it's important that we pray as Solomon prayed as he dedicated the temple, Lord, incline our hearts towards you. So let's take a moment of silent reflection and confession before the Lord this morning and receive his mercy and forgiveness and ask for him to incline our hearts towards him. Well, thanks for listening in to the preaching ministry of Nest Baptist, where we seek to equip people to love God and love others. If you would like more information about what we do and why we do it, please check out our website at nestbaptist.com where you will find links to all of our ministries, weekly updates, contact information for our staff, and a button to donate. Your donations go to making resources like this possible and helps us in many other ways in reaching our surrounding community with the good news of Jesus Christ. So thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.